It's September 23rd, 1971. 38-year-old Roscoe White is a welder and mechanic for M&M Manufacturing in Dallas, Texas. It's around 4.30 in the afternoon, not long to go until he can call it a day and go home to his wife Geneva and his sons, Roscoe Jr. and Ricky. Coming back from his break, he makes his way to his work area where his friend and coworker Richard Adair is waiting for him. As Roscoe rounds a corner, he thinks he sees a man leaving the far end of the workshop. He only catches a glimpse of the figure, wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase, not exactly grimy overalls and safety goggles. Maybe he got lost. Roscoe tells Richard to grab the metal sheet they need to weld and the two set to work. Roscoe flips on his safety mask and fires up his torch. It's an easy enough job, the kind he's done a hundred times before. But today, there's one big difference that neither man is aware of. Underneath the metal table is a can of something called PC-68. It's a standard chemical cleaning product used to stop liquid concrete from sticking to surfaces. But it shouldn't be there. PC-68 is highly volatile. In the wrong circumstances, it's prone to explode. As Roscoe works, globs of molten metal drip down and land on the lid of the flammable compound. They continue, oblivious to the hot metal eating its way through the thin container casing. Suddenly, Roscoe's welding torch flares up. By tragic coincidence, it's been silently leaking acetylene gas. The belch of flames that sprays out hits the bench and the compromised can of PC-68. Without warning, the can explodes. The two men are instantly covered in burning PC-68. Napalm-like, it sticks to their skin, inflicting severe burns. They're both rushed to hospital. Richard Adair has third-degree burns from his waist to his feet. He's going to need skin grafts and faces a long road to recovery. Roscoe is even less fortunate. He's in agony with burns covering 90% of his body. All the doctors can do is dull the pain. Roscoe's wife, Geneva White, hurries to Parkland Hospital to be by his bedside. Another visitor is Roscoe's pastor, Reverend Jack Shaw from the Central Park Baptist Church. It's not clear whether Roscoe knows he's dying or he just senses it from the severity of his injuries. Either way, his condition worsens. And in what little time he has left, he allegedly makes a deathbed confession to Reverend Shaw. One that hints at a life far more sinister than that of a family man and welder. Reverend Shaw will claim that Roscoe White confesses to being a contract killer. Apparently, Roscoe admits to committing multiple murders, some of them overseas, some of them on home soil, and that he did it on the orders of the U.S. government. The confession shocks Reverend Shaw. Roscoe, he knows, is a former Marine and police officer. But listening to Roscoe beg for God's forgiveness he's pretty sure Roscoe is referring to something else, something darker. 
Before the Reverend can ask for details, Roscoe makes one final revelation. With his dying breath, Roscoe suddenly recalls the suited man hurrying from the workshop. He mutters something about the CIA severing ties with him, implying the explosion was no accident. Reverend Shaw simply doesn't know what to make of these bizarre claims. It seems none of Roscoe's coworkers noticed anyone out of the ordinary that day. Was there something more sinister going on? Or was it simply the confused ramblings of a dying man? Sadly, Roscoe doesn't get another chance to explain himself. He passes away the following day, on September 24th, leaving Geneva to raise their boys alone. Reverend Shaw decides to keep the strange and outlandish claims to himself. And for almost two decades, Roscoe White's deathbed confession remains his secret. In fact, it might never have come to light if it hadn't been for the curiosity of Roscoe's youngest son, Ricky. In 1982, Ricky, all grown up, will make an incredible discovery that gives his father's dying words new meaning. Evidence that links his father to the highest profile murder in the history of the United States, if not the world. Ricky will come to believe that in Dallas, Texas, on the 22nd of November, 1963, his father assassinated President John F. Kennedy. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Roscoe White, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying. It's about a former Marine and Dallas police officer a man with links to Lee Harvey Oswald, the so-called lone gunman accused of killing President John F. Kennedy, the treasure trove of evidence that Roscoe's family claims connects him to the assassination, and a son determined to tell his father's story, however dark it may be. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Here And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, 
and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Roscoe White is born on November 18, 1933, in Foreman, Arkansas. He grows up as a typical small-town boy. He enjoys playing football, and he goes to church every Sunday with his family. When he graduates, he makes a speech to his classmates about the need for a strong national defense to stand up to the growing wave of communism. In 1954, age 21, he marries a local girl, Geneva Toland. A few years later, he decides to leave the safety of home and join the Marines. In 1957, he ships out aboard the USS Bexar, bound for Yokosuka, Japan. Also aboard the vessel is another Marine whose name in a few years time will be known the world over. Lee Harvey Oswald, the so-called lone gunman behind the assassination of President Kennedy. Sources differ, but some claim both men find themselves stationed at Atsugi Air Base, a highly classified location. Roscoe is part of Marine Observation Squadron, while Oswald is assigned to air control. Amongst other things, Atsugi is home to a large CIA station. It's not uncommon for the agency to recruit new assets from within the military. In such cases, the new recruits would often stay in their army post as cover. Whether they approached Roscoe is unclear, but he appears happy with his career even re-enlisting in 1959 for another six years. In 1961, while Roscoe is still serving his country on the other side of the world, troubling events unfold closer to home. Events that some believe would lead to the tragic death of the most powerful man on the planet. It's April, 1961. Newly elected President John F. Kennedy, known to most simply as JFK, has inherited plans from his predecessor for an invasion of Cuba. Plans drawn up by the CIA. The aim? To dispose of its communist leader, Fidel Castro. The idea is to use a force made up of disgruntled Cuban expats trained by the CIA. It's hoped this will give JFK plausible deniability in the event anything goes wrong. On April 15th, JFK gives the go-ahead and the invasion force lands in an area known as the Bay of Pigs. Its name will become synonymous with failure as the mission is a complete disaster. After a calamitous four days of fighting, the conflict is quickly over. The expats are defeated with over a thousand of them captured by Castro's soldiers. Any hope of concealing US involvement disappears after an aircraft painted in Cuban colors is proven to be American in origin. It eventually costs the USA $53 million worth of food and medicine to secure release of the prisoners. Kennedy, humiliated and outraged at the CIA's failure, turns his back on the agency's plan for Cuba. He focuses instead on improving relations with the USSR while checking the Soviet-backed spread of communism in South Asia, Vietnam in particular. This is a choice some believe proves fatal for the young president. 
JFK's decision to withdraw support following the Bay of Pigs allegedly breeds bad blood between the White House and the CIA. Some claim that hardline elements of the intelligence agency now see Kennedy as soft on communism, perhaps even posing a threat to national security himself. Some conspiracy theorists even say this bad blood will feed into events that will shake the world only a few years later. Events that will throw Roscoe White's name into the spotlight. It's 1962, one year after the failed Bay of Pigs operation. Roscoe and Geneva White have two boys, Roscoe Jr., aged three, and Ricky, aged one. Despite having three years left to serve, Roscoe White applies for a hardship discharge from the Marines. His reasons for doing this aren't clear. Coincidentally, his former comrade-in-arms, Lee Harvey Oswald, had also left the Marines three years earlier in 1959. It's a small connection that most would dismiss as insignificant. But in 1963, Roscoe moves his family to Dallas, Texas, settling in the quiet neighborhood of Oak Cliff. It just so happens, in October the same year, Oswald moves to the very same area. In September, Roscoe gets a job at the Dallas Police Department. Shortly after this, his wife, Geneva, starts working as a hostess at a nightclub called The Carousel. The club is owned by a man named Jack Ruby. By chance, Ruby would also have a part to play in the infamous events to come. The connections seem to keep stacking up. As Roscoe and Geneva settle into their new jobs, there's a buzz around the city. Dallas is due to have the eyes of the world on it thanks to the impending visit from the president and first lady. Roscoe is still just a junior member of the force and isn't supposed to be on duty for the president's visit. But that won't stop his name from becoming linked with the events about to unfold when JFK comes to town. It's November 22nd, 1963. The day starts gray and overcast, but begins to brighten as Air Force One lands at Lovefield, six miles north of Dallas, at around 11.30 in the morning. JFK and his wife, Jackie, step off the plane and are met by a swarm of well-wishers and members of the press. The forecast had predicted more rain, which would have meant a bulletproof plexiglass covering on the 1961 Lincoln convertible that's set to drive them through town. As it is, the skies are clear, and that means that the president's car will be open-topped and unprotected. The ride should only last around an hour, and JFK wants the crowds to be able to see him properly. Accompanying JFK and Jackie are the governor of Texas, John Connolly, and his wife, Nellie. The vice president, Lyndon Johnson, and his wife ride in a separate car behind them. It's around noon when they reach downtown Dallas. The crowds waiting to catch a glimpse of their president have swelled to over 150,000. Flags hang from wires across the street, waving in the breeze as the procession of vehicles passes underneath. At 12.39, the motorcade heads towards a city park known as Dealey Plaza. As they swing left onto Elm Street, Nellie Connolly turns to speak to JFK, who is sitting behind her. Mr. President, 
You can't say Dallas doesn't love you. No, he replies. You certainly can't. Nellie's words are some of the last JFK will ever hear. Accounts will vary as to the exact sequence of events, but the most infamous of all will come from a man called Abraham Zebruder, a 58-year-old clothing manufacturer. He has come to see the president and brought his 8-millimeter camera along to capture the occasion. A handful of police motorcycles lead the way, and Zapruder starts his camera rolling when they come into view. Seconds later, he sees the president's car with JFK himself, looking relaxed and waving to the crowd. The procession of cars is only traveling around 11 miles per hour, so Zapruder is able to take it all in as they coast towards him. There's a brief moment where JFK and Jackie are hidden from view behind a road sign. Over the noise of the cheering crowds, there's a sound like a motorbike backfiring. When they reappear, Zapruder sees JFK with both hands balled into fists, holding them to his throat, turning towards Jackie. In the seat in front of JFK, Governor Connolly turns to look over his right shoulder, face twisted in pain. Suddenly, a Secret Service agent jumps from the car behind and sprints towards the president. There had been no motorbike misfire. It was the sound of a gunshot. The bullet struck JFK from behind, hitting him in the upper back and exiting near the base of his throat. It's the same bullet that continued its journey and hit Governor Connolly. Just moments before the agent can reach JFK, a second bullet strikes the president, this time in the head. Zapruder catches the exact moment where a pink mist of JFK's blood clouds the air. JFK falls into his wife's lap. Oh my God, they have shot my husband! She screams before clambering out of her seat and up onto the trunk of the car. The Secret Service agent reaches her, jumping up onto the tailboard, putting himself between the President and First Lady and shielding him from any more bullets that might follow. He grabs Jackie's hand to steady her as the car picks up speed, heading for Parkland's hospital. They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known. Men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. 
Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Despite desperate efforts from ER staff, JFK is pronounced dead at 1.33 p.m., just 63 minutes after the fatal shots were fired. After the killing, strange events continue to unfold at speed. Incredibly, an arrest is made just 17 minutes later. Officers apprehend Lee Harvey Oswald inside the Texas theater. He's charged with two counts of murder, having also allegedly shot a Dallas police officer by the name of J.D. Tippett in the aftermath of Dealey Plaza. He denies the charges, in fact, he seems surprised by the accusations, but he won't be given the chance to defend himself. Just two days later on November 24th, in the basement of the Dallas police headquarters, Oswald himself is the target of an assassination attempt. Despite being surrounded by uniformed officers and detectives, Oswald is shot at point-blank range by local nightclub owner Jack Ruby, allegedly Geneva White's employer. How Ruby, a man known to be connected to the Chicago mob, was able to gain entry to Dallas police headquarters is another mystery, one of many. But it's another curious link, where Jack Ruby, Roscoe White, and Lee Harvey Oswald somehow connected? We'll never know. Following the shooting, Oswald is rushed to the same hospital as JFK, where he's even treated by some of the same doctors. He doesn't fare any better than the man he's accused of killing, dying almost two hours later. Oswald's violent death is celebrated by many, the vengeance of a grieving nation. It also marks the end of a bloody 48 hours in Dallas and the beginning of decades of speculation. Without a confession or a trial, it's not long before multiple theories about what happened spring up. Question follows question. Had Oswald acted alone? How were the authorities able to locate him so quickly? And was he part of a wider conspiracy? Any hope of learning more from Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby, is also quickly snuffed out. Ruby too dies suddenly, just weeks later, whilst awaiting trial. Cause of death, is reported as a pulmonary embolism. Abraham Zapruder would become the most famous witness to the shooting of JFK, his 26 seconds of footage forever linking his name to that of the murdered president. He may be the only person to capture the moment the fatal bullet struck, but he wasn't the only one there with a camera, not by a long shot. Many more witnesses will come forward offering up what video and photos they have to help the investigation. These range from clips of the motorcade just before it turned onto that final stretch to the images of the school book depository that overlooks Dealey Plaza. Some identify a figure in the window that could be a man looking down over the route. Some identify Oswald as the shooter, saying he fired from the sixth floor of the book depository. This is the version that's ultimately agreed upon by the Warren Commission in 1964. A group of senior officials led by Chief Justice Earl Warren tasked with investigating the assassination of JFK. 
After taking depositions from 552 witnesses, they release an 888-page report. They conclude that based on the evidence they've seen, Oswald acted alone, and that the same is true of Jack Ruby. Many question the commission's findings. It's all too neat and tidy and ignores numerous contradictory accounts from eyewitnesses. People who claim to have heard multiple gunshots from other locations, in particular, from a raised embankment that comes to be known as the Grassy Knoll. Also, there are those who say they were questioned or intimidated by armed secret service agents and police officers. Agents and officers the government says were never there. One story will emerge that involves a uniformed policeman coming over and demanding a witness turn over the film from his camera. An officer coming from the proximity of the grassy knoll where many claim to have heard gunshots. Some believe that the officer's name is Roscoe White and that he did more than just steal a roll of film. But all this would remain unknown for years to come. On the day in question, Officer Roscoe White returns home eats his dinner, and goes to bed. It's October, 1965. Nearly two years after the assassination of JFK, Roscoe White quits the force. He says it's a combination of financial and marital problems. Over the next few years, the family moves around. Roscoe has different jobs. His relationship with Geneva becomes strained. Apparently, he's unfaithful. In 1970, the Whites meet Reverend Jack Shaw at the Central Park Baptist Church. He becomes something of a confidant to both Roscoe and Geneva, counseling them through rocky spells in the marriage. It doesn't go unnoticed by Shaw that for a working-class guy with a growing family, Roscoe seems to have an abundance of cash. New car, nice toys for the kids, a lakeside cabin in central Texas. According to Shaw, Roscoe even pledges $10,000 to the church's building program. The following year in 1971, Roscoe gets a new job at the M&M Equipment Company, but it will only last a few months. Tragedy strikes and Roscoe ends up in the hospital with life-threatening injuries on September 23rd. It's here that he allegedly confides in Reverend Shaw, admitting to having killed people for the government. Ricky White is just 10 years old when his dad dies. He and his brother, Roscoe Jr., age 12, are left with only their mother to raise them. He knows his dad was once a Marine and a police officer, but doesn't remember much from that time. Mostly, he remembers a sudden, frightening change in his parents following JFK's assassination. Geneva became erratic and was often upset. His father grew distant, barely interacting with his children at all in the years leading up to his death. Growing up, a few strange occurrences add to the sense of mystery surrounding his father, Roscoe. A few years after the accident, an old friend of his dad's appears at their home. Ricky doesn't recall an exact date, but remembers that the friend gave Geneva a pack of photos that she locked in her bedroom cabinet. She tells Ricky that the friend had been looking after them for his dad, but won't elaborate any more on that. 
the incident arouses Ricky's curiosity. One day while Geneva is out, he breaks open the cabinet. What he finds is a series of photos related to the Kennedy assassination, including shots of Lee Harvey Oswald. At this point, Ricky doesn't know quite what to make of his discovery. A few months later, their house is broken into. A number of items are stolen, including the pack of pictures. Two men are arrested a few days later. Their photos are taken into custody and given their links to the JFK shooting, find their way to the Senate Intelligence Committee for assassinations. According to Geneva White, in December 1976, several members of the committee visit her. They return the pictures, but also ask a number of questions about Roscoe. Apparently, she also hands over a number of items belonging to her late husband. It's a confusing series of events for young Ricky. Why would his dad have these photos? Why would anyone want to steal them? And why would the government take an interest? It all adds to the mystery surrounding his dad, Roscoe. It will be seven long years before he finally starts to join the dots. What happens next is a head-spinning journey into the dark corners of JFK conspiracy culture. But at its heart seems to be a son's mission to discover the dark truth about his dad. What follows is Ricky White's story. In the 1980s, Ricky will make a discovery that turns his world upside down and makes him the focus of the nation's media. It'll also add fuel to the fire of one of history's most unsettling questions. Who really shot JFK? It all starts in 1982, when Ricky White, age 21, comes across an old military footlocker belonging to his dad, Roscoe. It was stashed at his grandfather's house and had been overlooked all these years. Inside, he finds Roscoe's military service record and photos of him from his time in the Marines. There's also a key to a safety deposit box and a receipt for $200,000 in negotiable bonds. An awful lot of money for a welder in East Texas. Money that Ricky and his family might be entitled to. Unfortunately, there's no indication of where the box is stored. There's another item in the footlocker that will prove to be the most important though, his father's journal. Ricky flicks through it, hoping to learn something about his dad, the man he never got a chance to know in life. But it makes for pretty dry reading, just a mundane account of daily events spanning decades. He puts it away for a time, occasionally going back to it and reading a few pages. It's not until 1986 when flicking through it again, that he lands on November 23rd, 1963. What he reads stuns him. Shaking, he drives to his mother's house to show her what he's found. Entries in his father's handwriting, describing Roscoe's involvement in one of the most infamous crimes in modern history. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy He waits for a reaction. Maybe she'll laugh, 
dismiss it as nonsense. Instead, she turns to him with tears in her eyes and tells him it's all true. Apparently, the diary reveals the dark truth about that day and confirms what many have suspected for 30 years, that there was another gunman, the supposed mystery man on the grassy knoll. According to his own diary, that man was Dallas police officer Roscoe White. The diary states that Roscoe was part of a three-man assassination team set up in a triangular crossfire to execute the president. He claims the fatal bullet was his own, fired from behind a picket fence on the grassy knoll. He also says he stole a roll of film from a witness immediately afterwards. It's unclear what the relationship was between Roscoe and Lee Harvey Oswald. Apparently, he isn't mentioned by name. But it seems Oswald wasn't one of the three shooters. He was just the fall guy, the man who'd take the blame. In a further revelation, Roscoe White reveals his code name for the mission was Mandarin. The other shooters were Lebanon and Saul, code names given to them by the CIA. For young Ricky, it's a lot to take in, let alone have it all confirmed by his tearful mother. In the days and weeks that follow, Ricky wrestles with what to do about his discovery. Other than his mom, the only person to see Roscoe's journal is Ricky's wife, Trisha. Though a babysitter would also later confirm to have caught a glimpse of it. Finally, he decides to reach out to the Midland District Attorney, Alan Shore. Ricky wants advice on how to handle his discovery. He also seeks help in locating the safety deposit box that he now has the key for. Ricky doesn't know what to believe, but he might as well track down the missing cash. Cash that may have been a payment for his father's role in the murder of a U.S. president. He's half expecting to get laughed out of the DA's office. But to his surprise, the DA Al Shore takes his story seriously. He and an investigator make several trips to Dallas, visiting Ricky at his home. They also conduct an unsuccessful search for the safety deposit box. In fact, Shore is so compelled by Ricky's story that he shares it with the FBI. Agents from the Bureau also visit Ricky's home. They make him load everything he found in the footlocker into his car and follow them to the federal building. Once there, he's questioned by more agents though most of the questions come from a mysterious man over a speakerphone. Turns out, this man is Senator Arlen Specter, a member of the Warren Commission, the official body responsible for the original investigation into the JFK assassination. According to Ricky, copies are made of everything, including the journal, and an imprint is taken of the safety deposit box key. After several hours, Ricky is told that his story is not considered of value and he's allowed to return home. But apparently, the feds aren't quite done with him. Apparently, later the same day, an agent returns to the house to ask a few more questions. Shortly afterwards, Ricky discovers the diary is missing. Stolen by the FBI? Ricky thinks so. 
The FBI would later deny having ever seen the diary, though a Dallas police report seems to confirm Ricky's version of events. Once again, the truth is hard to get at. It's a big setback for Ricky. After a promising start, he's begun to accept what seems to be the awful truth about his father. But now his inquiry has been blocked. He decides perhaps it's for the best to let it go and just forget it all. But the following year, in 1989, Ricky's story comes to the attention of a group of investigators called the Assassination Investigation Center, or AIC for short. The AIC is run by skeptics, doubtful of the official version of events surrounding JFK's murder. Based just three blocks north of Dealey Plaza, the AIC headquarters has the feel of a museum. Inside is a collection of pictures and assassination-related paraphernalia, with footage of the day's events running on a loop. The AIC offered a look into Ricky's story. They bring a Houston-based private investigator on board by the name of Joe West. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. One of West's first acts is to interview Ricky's mom, Geneva White. She's not in great health and is reluctant to speak with him. West needs help, so he decides to bring in someone Geneva trusts, her old church pastor and one-time counselor, Reverend Jack Shaw. The man who was with Roscoe White the day he died. Reverend Shaw speaks with Geneva alone. He conducts multiple interviews, eventually clocking up more than 40 hours. During these conversations, she opens up, making some astounding claims. For example, Geneva recounts how she once overheard a conversation between her husband and Jack Ruby, the nightclub owner who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Geneva confirms that she worked for Ruby in November 1963 and says she heard the two men talking about the assassination before it happened. She reveals Roscoe had even discussed the planned assassination with her directly, saying, Kennedy has been a pretty good president, but he has to die. He didn't carry out his orders. And if I don't carry out my orders, I'll have to die too. Geneva also claims to have been introduced to Lee Harvey Oswald by Roscoe at a local rifle range back in 1963. Reverend Shaw is astounded. 
He only has Geneva's word to take on these revelations, but no doubt, he now remembers Roscoe's bizarre deathbed confession about having killed people on home soil for his country. What he may have dismissed then as the confused ramblings of a former Marine suddenly feels very real. All of this new information generates a sense of excitement amongst the members of the AIC, but with the journal lost, what they really need is hard evidence. They all get to thinking. Maybe there's something they overlooked, another piece of the puzzle that's yet to emerge. In June, 1990, Geneva has an intuition that there's more to be found back at her father's house, where they found Roscoe's footlocker. Ricky heads up there. Sure enough, he finds a sealed aluminum canister. Inside is one of Roscoe's marine dog tags, a faded green textbook, and three telegrams from the 1960s that appear to be orders from naval intelligence. They are addressed to Mandarin, the code name mentioned in Roscoe's diary. One message, dated October 1963, two months before JFK was killed, says that Mandarin's next assignment was to eliminate a national security threat to worldwide peace. The green notebook turns out to be an even more bizarre find. Inside are pictures of Oswald and Ruby. Also in there is a picture of John Kennedy next to his brother Bobby, who was the attorney general at the time of JFK's death. There's a scratch across the image of JFK's face. Underneath are written the words, Godhead, going after tail later. It's a line that could have chilling significance. Bobby Kennedy, like his brother, was gunned down in 1968 by an assassin. He died while attempting to win his party's nomination to run for president. Could Roscoe White and his alleged co-conspirators have plotted to kill not one, but two Kennedy brothers? There are also pictures of people Ricky doesn't recognize, some with faces also scratched out. At the back of the book is a line that reads, 28 people died under witness program with a signature below of Roscoe Anthony White. Beside this are a series of numerical notations Ricky can't decipher but he can only assume this book is in fact a record of others his father has killed. Loose ends tied up on behalf of the CIA. Once again, Roscoe White's deathbed confession that he'd killed multiple people on home soil rings loud and clear. Ricky is overwhelmed. He could barely come to terms with the notion that his father might have killed JFK, let alone Bobby Kennedy and a host of others. At this point, with new evidence seemingly piling up in every corner, a rift opens up in the investigation. Factions form with disagreements mounting over various elements of the case. Joe West and Reverend Shaw split from the AIC after a falling out. Lawsuits are threatened. Ricky White is overwhelmed and unsure what to do. The seriousness of the new allegations appears too much for them all to manage. Ricky decides to go public. He holds a press conference on August 6, 1990. What he says shocks the nation. He stands in front of the assembled media outlets and walks them through what he has found and what he believes it could mean. 
He presents the evidence, talks about the stolen diary, explains his dad's links to Oswald, and relates Roscoe's account of what happened that fateful day. When the story runs in the newspapers, the CIA is quick to discredit it. In fact, an agency spokesman in Washington goes to unusual lengths to deny Roscoe White's involvement with the CIA and calls the allegations outrageous. The FBI too moved to denounce Roscoe White as a nobody, saying Ricky's story is not credible. The AIC investigators put this to the test. They submit a request under the Freedom of Information Act, asking to see if the FBI has a file on Roscoe White. It turns out they do. A total of 46 pages, in fact. Not bad for nobody. The FBI agree to release 20 pages. For reasons unknown, the rest remain classified. Of those released, 19 are fully redacted, leaving only one page of legible information. For Ricky and the AIC, it's exactly the kind of non-disclosure that seems to support Roscoe's tale. The surprises keep coming. In an unexpected twist in September 1990, Geneva White announces she has discovered a second journal, supposedly also written by her husband. She hands it over to Reverend Jack Shaw, who in turn shares it with P.I. Joe West. Now a rift in the White family opens up. Ricky is adamant this new journal is not genuine. He claims it's a fake created by his mother. Why she would do this, he doesn't know for sure. But around the same time, Geneva receives a payment of nearly $5,500. Part of it apparently a gift from Jack Shaw's own ministry. The rest is a donation by a famous Hollywood filmmaker. The entries, supposedly dating from 1957, are also written in felt pen, something not used widely until the 60s. There's also a mention of the final job Roscoe was supposedly asked to perform for the CIA involving President Nixon. The name Watergate is referenced. This infamous presidential scandal didn't happen until 10 months after Roscoe White died and wouldn't be referred to as Watergate until several months after that. The whole thing seems obviously phony, but the fiasco was enough to bring the House of Cards crashing down. Outraged and reeling, Ricky appears on a number of talk shows and news programs, but the media turns on him, pulling his original story to pieces as well. The ridicule wears away at Ricky's resolve. After all these blows, he decides that it just isn't worth the toll it's taking on him and his wife, Trisha. They give up for good. Geneva dies in 1991, and Ricky fades into the background. Any desire to get the truth about his dad out to the American public has been beaten out of him by his experiences with the press. Was it all simply a hoax? It seems clear that elements of the Roscoe White story were skillfully engineered, though by whom remains unclear. Perhaps the whole White family was manipulated by others for personal gain. Unpicking that would be an investigation in itself. After the circus of the Roscoe White journals and the media fallout, it's impossible for anyone to tell fact from fiction anymore. 
Theories about JFK's death continue to swirl around as they have for decades. The name Roscoe White will never totally fade away. Even now, some still believe he played a part. Killer? Collaborator? CIA plant used to frame Oswald? It's all speculation. A number of witnesses come forward claiming they too saw Roscoe White that day in Dealey Plaza. Then there are his links to Oswald, their time in the military and how they ended up in the same part of Dallas. There's also Roscoe's own photos of Oswald that were hidden, then stolen, then returned. And what about Geneva's connection to Jack Ruby, Oswald's own murderer? Of course, they could all be coincidences, but conspiracies, both real and imagined, are built on coincidences. The official story stays the same. Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, but Ricky White can never know for sure what's real and what is not. Who was Roscoe White? Loyal Marine and lawman? Or CIA contractor and conspirator? Ricky may never know for sure who his dad really was. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet David Neal Cox, a man on death row in Mississippi. In 2010, David Neal Cox viciously gunned down his estranged wife and sexually abused his stepdaughter. He was arrested for the murder and sentenced to death, but there was another crime people believed he was involved in. During his incarceration, information emerged which linked David Neal Cox to the disappearance of his sister-in-law, who went missing in the summer of 2007. Just hours before his own death, David Neal Cox finally addresses these troubling rumors. Will his dying words solve a decades-old missing persons case? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.